I, for one, am not shocked that Steve would make a giant joke and the children would vilify him. It's just weird how the good Lord works. It's weird. Um, this January has been kind of interesting. Um, usually at the end of the year, we have a testimony Sunday, and then we pray in the new year. Um, just because Christmas fell on a, a Sunday this year, our testimony Sunday actually went in January. Um, so that was New Year's Day, and then we had the praying in the new year the next year for the BIC week of prayer. And then the third weekend um, in January is usually MLK Sunday, so we like to kind of re remember our call to, to racial justice. And, and so as I was kind of planning out the year, it was tricky because I was like, well, Lent's coming. You know, what can we fit into Lent? Um, so Pastor Linda had this idea, like, what if we just did a thing called sermons I've always wanted to preach? And I realized, like, how, you know, I don't know what the word is for me, structured I've become. Because I was just like, that sounds wild. Like, what do you mean sermons I want to preach? What? You know? So this is a sermon I want to preach. I decided that it would be good to kind of go through our BIC streams, right? Um, because that's how my mind works. It's like, what do I want to preach? Let's preach streams, you know? Um, and the reason I think this is important is a great quote by um, Audrey Malfers. Um, it's in our, our BIC book, uh, Focusing Our Faith, which kind of talks about our core values. And this, I, I read this probably like 15, 16 years ago as I was coming into the BIC, and it's always stuck with me, right? And she says this, um, Aubrey Malfers says this, Every Christian organization, as well as its leadership, needs to bring out, dust off, discuss, refine, develop, display, and implement its predominant values if it desires to make significant spiritual impact, right? So, and essentially what's being said there is that, like, we need to not just say this is what we believe, we need to teach what we believe. Uh, we need not just teach what we believe, we need to practice what we believe. And we need to do it quite often. Uh, so in the past, I, I've done sermons on the core values. Uh, I've done sermons on the HBIC commitments. The core values of the BIC, you can find all these on our website. If you want the sermons, if you want to listen to those 20 sermons, I'll send them to you if you want, right? But as I thought about it is that these sermons all flow from the streams that we sit in, right? We as Brethren in Christ believe that God is our source, the ultimate source. Everything comes from God. However, as we've interacted as a body, there's been streams or, or movements that, that God has brought in our country that we've been able to take a step back and be like, oh, well, that's interesting. What can we learn from them that's already a part of us? So that's how I understand the streams of the brethren in Christ, right? What can we learn from what God is doing out there that is also a part of who we already are, right? And so that, that, that comes as a, as a different points. And, and so for, for BIC, probably my first... I would say 15 and a half years in the BIC, I held firm that we only had three streams, right? In the last six months, I've finally given up, and I'm like, fine, we'll let in the evangelicals, right? Because if we're going to go to the BIC premise, right, of we're not just saying we're like everyone out there, we're saying how is God moving here that makes sense for us? Right? So there's some things in the Anabaptism even that we didn't really like. Right? There's some things in Pietism, which we'll talk about this morning, that we don't really like. There's some things in Wesleyan holiness and, and Wesleyanism that we didn't really like. But there are things we loved that were already part of who we are. Right? And so if we look at that with evangelicals, like, oh, yeah, well, that's easy. Right? We, can, we can find out what does God really call us to be. So these streams, I think the other good way to understand them is not just what God's doing out there, but as we're going down the river, we're getting these different tributaries coming in. And, and so as they come in, they change who we are, but we're still marching towards God together, right? So every little stream is going to impact us. Now, last week we talked about Anabaptism. That's the one that I kind of see as the foundational one, right? That's the one where we come from believing in believer's baptism. Uh, another key thing about the Anabaptists that I don't think I highlighted last week was they were maybe one of the first groups to emerge that said, you know what, it's okay to choose 
to be part of a community, right? Like you're not part of the church because you're French or you're not part of the church because you're English. You're not part of the church because, you know, you're Roman Catholic, right? It's not about the nation church. You can actually choose your community, choose your people, choose to follow God together. I think that's actually a beautiful heritage, right? Like the fact that you're just like, we're not automatically, because we're French, we're now French Catholics, right? They're like, no, we're going to choose the community we're in. And some of the things they chose about was separation of church and state, uh, simple living, peace, Right. But then the things that you'll see together through all these uh, uh, streams that we're going to go through is that they also believed in, in, in obedience and discipleship. And you'll see those themes coming time and time and time again. Now, that was their theology. Their practice is they believed in something called priesthood of all believers, right? Which, again, most Christians take that as like a, a for granted now, right? They believe that every single person who comes to believe and follow Jesus has something to give, something to add, something to bring to the family, right? And, and part of that was that, listen, not only do you have these gifts, you ought to be using these gifts for the kingdom, right? And, but then also, they looked at church, and how they decided to do church was very communally. So when we say we have priesthood of all believers, they also believe that every single voice mattered. So you would see in how they set up their church. So, for example, this afternoon we have a riveting meeting called Council. Right? Like that is part of our Anabaptist heritage, right? That we're going to come together and actually make decisions about the church together. Right? A lot of churches don't operate that way. Right? It's just like one or two people say something and then you do it because that's what you've always done and that's what you're supposed to do. But Anabaptists believed in community and, and nurturing everyone's voice and making decisions together. Right? The other thing that's, that's also beautiful is that as they've established as a group, they started to look around and notice something that was happening. The Pietists emerge maybe a hundred years after the Anabaptists. What's fascinating about the Pietists is that they really start out in 17th century Germany. And they noticed that, 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 I don't know, you guys got to use your imagination on some of this stuff. They noticed that like, when Christians got together, they would fight a lot, right? And not only would they fight, they would take their, 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 their toys out of the sandbox and go build a new sandbox, right? Like they, they saw this pattern. There's like, there's something wrong with this, right? And they also noticed that within Christianity, we tended to not unite as one. If we disagreed on something, we took our toys and went home, or we started our own group that believed what we believed, exactly how we believed, until they didn't anymore. Then we went again, started our own group. So the pietists are emerging out of this thing are just like, there's something not okay with us just taking our toys and going home. The other thing that's fascinating is that a lot of these uh, 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 breakdowns or disputes were on theology, right? So I call them theological beatdowns. Now, we know about the Protestant Reformation. But one thing that's fascinating about Christianity, it seems like every 100 or 200 years, we would have a major break, right? Now, the, the two I'm going to highlight is, is about 1,000 years after Jesus, it's called the Great Schism. That's the break between the East and the West, right? It's why the Western church looks very different than the Eastern Orthodox church, right? But then you have um, uh, Luther coming with the Protestant Reformation. And when the Protestant Reformation comes, now we have a series of break after break, after break. So by the time you get to the 1600s, the 1700s, the pietists are just like, is it really about how smart we are? Is it really about how we can articulate better than us? Like, they actually were one of the first ones, I think, who realized that, like, we probably can't argue people into the kingdom, right? It can't just be about what we have in our head. It has to start to be about what we have in our hearts. And as they think about what it means to actually be in relationship with God, they realize it's not just what you know, it's not just who you know, it's do you actually feel and experience 
who God is. And to usher in some of that experience, they said, you know what, we need to get back to studying the scripture. We need to do it in a community. And again, the brethren kind of why we like it. We need to do it in community as groups. We need to actually believe that everyone's a leader here and everyone has a gift. And we need to bring up lay leadership among us. We need to have a devotion. So in our culture, when we hear piety or pious, right, it's not a good thing. Right? We, we kind of have this, this image or this thinking of piety or pious as like high and mighty, right? Nose up in the air, like I think I'm better than anyone, right? But that's not what they meant by piety. What they meant was, are you truly devoted to God? Are you truly devoted to following Jesus? Are you truly devoted to one another? So that's kind of where they're coming in. Because for them, it's not just about knowing and thinking about rightly about Jesus, is how is it impacting your life? Do you know God? Or are you living right? So you see this marriage between piety and obedience because what they want is this heartfelt change, this new birth change, this peace that comes from God alone. Now, what makes pietism even trickier is that when you look at their theology, there's not much new that they're saying, right? So when, when the Anabaptists come along as brethren in Christ, we take pietism, but so do the Lutheran. Right. Wesley comes along. He takes some of it. Calvin comes along. They say, like, it's hard to find Christians who are going to argue against you. Like, you really need to experience God. Right. Like, no one's going to be like, yeah, no, I don't believe that one. Right. So, so you see all these people intermarrying it. But what I found most fascinating about the Brethren in Christ and studying about our entry into pietism this week is that we, for the most part, had separated from our world, right? We had been our enclaves, and we were just like, this is who we are. But we kept hearing murmurs and murmurs and murmurs of what was happening out there. And I think there's maybe two or three things that changes and brings pietism into the brethren in Christ. The first one was that we saw the murmurs out there, and we invited guests like Martin Bohm. We invited people from the outside who weren't necessarily part of our community who would preach about, have you experienced God? And we're like, well, have we? Have we experienced God? They seem to have a different understanding of who God is. Another practical thing I found out this week is that they wouldn't trust movements because people were different than them, right? However, when the pietists came, they were German. And because they were German, a lot of the brethren in Christ back then also spoke German. So there was a kinship that they felt was just like, well, these are our German brothers and sisters. Maybe we ought to listen to them, right? And I think that's a fascinating thing about maybe a reminder to us that if we want to reach people for God, we might want to learn their language, right? It doesn't matter what good thing we have. If they don't understand what we're saying, we're not going to get anywhere. But then the third thing that's fascinating to me is that they really took a step back and says, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is alive and it's real? And as they started asking these conversations, they realized that when we think about coming and following Jesus, it has to be this genuine conversion. It can't just be like, hey, I grew up in the church and now I follow Jesus. It's great. But it's like, when did you make that decision? How has God changed your life? How have you been born again? And kind of the, 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 the founding line that we came up with was that when you follow Jesus, it's got to be enjoyed with your heart and affirmed with your head. And I think that's the beauty of pietism, what it adds to us. Because we tend to be people who live in extremes, right? We tend to be black and white when there's a whole lot of gray in the middle. 
And if we want to navigate this grave, what the pietists have taught us is that, yeah, you got to know what you think about Jesus. But do you feel it in your heart? And is it shown in your life? As I thought about this, and I thought about the brethren in Christ marrying piety and obedience, I thought about how they changed a bunch of stuff that we've forgotten. One of the things that was fascinating is the brethren in Christ always, even though they learned from these revivals, they would look at the, the end of the, the service when we had the, the altar call, right? They would side-eye altar calls. They'd be like, oh, this is interesting. You think following Jesus is just making a decision. And then I think they felt like we're way in a minority because everyone seems to think following Jesus is just making a decision. While they thought it was important to make that decision, for them, conversion was a little bit different. Right? First, God and the Holy Spirit would come upon you, and you'd be convicted that, God, I'm a sinner. I fall short. I can't get to heaven without you. Now, for most Christians, we start there. We're like, well, believe in Jesus, and you're done. The brethren in Christ are like, no, well, actually, that's the start. What's next is now that you're seeking after God, do you know what repentance is? Have you prayed a general prayer to God, forgive me of my sins? Or have you actually sat down and said, God, this is what I've done wrong? And here's the other trickier one. God, these are the people I've harmed. And so part of them coming to Jesus was going back and doing the work with everyone you've harmed before and asking not just for repentance from God, but forgiveness from them and making restitution. Again, for them, it was never, I believe in God, let me make a decision. It was, I believe in God, am I willing to change my life? Am I willing to stop doing the harm that I'm doing? Am I willing to actually go and make things right? All of this was part of coming to Jesus. They would say, yes, the Holy Spirit is the agent in all of this. But we are never going to be people who only believe. We're going to be people who obey. So for us, it was never faith versus works. It was always faith and works. It was never, I said the prayer and now I'm saved. It was, I said the prayer and now I've begun the journey to making things right with my brothers and sisters, to asking for forgiveness, to actually turning my life around. So the brethren in Christ became these people of piety and obedience, right? And piety for them was, have you had that salvation experience? Have you had that warm feeling in your heart? Have you made that decision where you knew God was real? But also, have you become a disciple of Jesus? In the Great Commission, Jesus says what? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? And, and teaching them everything I've taught you. That's how we have understood following God. Not just a decision you made one time, but are you actually a disciple of Jesus? Because it's not enough to know who Jesus is, know what Jesus has done. Are you actually making Jesus your Lord? Have you actually submitted to Jesus? Are you actually made that decision to not just be baptized, but to do everything that God has commanded you? And so as I thought about a story in Scripture that will encompass some of these things or most of these things, I kept coming back to the end zone chapter apparently, right? John chapter 3 of Jesus, of Nicodemus, of being born again, of this interaction where Jesus goes to this teacher, or the teacher comes to Jesus, and, and we're going to talk about the physical and the spiritual. They're going to talk about heaven. They're going to talk about earth. They're going to talk about what does it mean for one to be born again? What does it mean for God to save us all? 
We're going to talk about Nicodemus. What does it mean to truly believe and have piety and choose the devotion, devote your life to God? But what does it mean to actually obey God? What does it mean that it's not just what we know, it's what we feel, what we experience? What does it mean that it's not just our ethnicity, or in our case, being born in the church that saves us? It's actually making that decision to follow Jesus. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to John chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 16 verses. I'll also have it for you up front. John 3, um, starting at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Other translations say, unless they are born from above. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by me saying, you all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept the testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in God who saves us, we thank you this morning for the Holy Spirit that calls us, that, convic that convicts us, that converts us, that transforms us, that changes us now and forever. Holy Spirit, we thank you that following God isn't just something we say or a prayer we pray. We thank you that salvation isn't something we earn because we're good enough. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your boundless love. We thank you that you have chosen us. But Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that we can be people who are devoted to you, who experience your love, who share your love, who are devoted to you, even as you are devoted to us. We pray that we can be people who obey what you've called us to obey, who obey what you've taught us to see and know and understand. Lord Jesus, our Christ, be our Lord today. Be our Lord today. Be our Lord today and forevermore. Amen. The background in John is that we're getting to the third chapter of John, and it's funny because John is, is, is this beautiful text, right? And, and there's some things that are just peculiar about John. Like, for example, John only gives seven miracles, right? You read through some of the Gospels, and sometimes it feels like you get seven miracles a chapter, right? But John only gives seven miracles because John's basic point is, I want you to know that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. 
is the Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And that in this Jesus, you who put your faith in him can have eternal life. That's the whole purpose that John is writing. He's saying Jesus, right, is the Logos, right? The wisdom of God, the, the God who was in the beginning, the God who was in the end, the God who's with us now. That Logos has now become what? Emmanuel. God with us. So as you read through the book of John, you see this theme where John is saying, God's power is here, and it's come to save you. So in the first two chapters, you have John introducing Jesus as this Logos, right? The, the God who was in the beginning, the God who's in the end, the God who's with us now, the God who's wisdom, the God who speaks things into existence is Jesus. But God in the form of Jesus is here to transform the world. And so you see Jesus' first miracle, right? And I love that because it's his mother who's just like, I think it's time. Like, go do something, right? But in the changing the water to wine, what I find interesting is that it is not necessarily the people of the wedding feast who are saved, right? They just thought it was a really good party. It's not really the people who are married who are saved, but they were really saved because culturally that would have been not good, right? To go to a wedding and they run out of food or they run out of wine, like that's not good. But if you read the story of the water to wine, it's his disciples, right? It's the disciples, the one who already have said, you're the Messiah, we follow you, we're going to go with you everywhere. It's them who see the power of God revealed and they're like, oh, whoa, this is real. And I think that's a comfort or it should be a comfort to us because we need reminders, too, that God is real. We need reminders, too, that God is alive, that God is working, that God is moving. We need reminders, too. Just because we made that decision to follow him doesn't mean we stop needing to experience God. And so that's how you have Jesus introduced to the world by making his disciples believe. And it's not until he clears the temple that we get John saying, well, then many others believe. And you know that story, right? Like they, they were selling in the temple. They were blocking the entrance from the outsiders, right? So anyone who wasn't basically a, a native Israelite, they were, they were selling and making profit. And Jesus goes and clears the temple. And then the people look and they say, whoa, this is different. He is different. Who is this Jesus? And then many believe. But by the time we get to John chapter 3, you can see the whole scene has shifted. We're going from introducing Jesus and saying God's power is here to now saying Jesus is here. Everyone has to come and meet him. So when Nicodemus shows up, we know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We know that he's part of the ruling council. The, the closest equivalent I can explain to this is like a member of the Supreme Court, right? Like Nicodemus isn't just like the guy next door, right? It's just like, oh, Jesus is out at night. Let's go talk to him. Nicodemus is a rich, is a powerful, is an influential person. So when he comes to Jesus, he comes at night. Now, a lot of people are like, well, he was cowardly. And that will hold up until you realize when Jesus is about to get killed, Nicodemus is one of the ones who goes before and pleads for the body of Jesus. This was not a cowardly man. Now, there's some people who say, well, the rabbis would teach at night, so maybe that's what's going on. I actually think he came at night, and John, in putting the story together, is going to talk about what? Darkness and light. Going from the unknown to the known. Going from thinking you're following God and following Jesus to actually having Jesus revealed. So I think when Nicodemus shows up at night, it's not because he's cowardly. It's not because he's avoiding anything. It's because that was just the time that they had to interact. So when he comes out, he makes a confession right away. Teacher, rabbi, we know that God is with you because we see what you're doing. And what I love about Jesus' response 
is Jesus says, well, you see the signs of power, but I'm more interested in what God's doing, not in what I'm doing. And I think that's a great reminder to us, right? Just as we go through our everyday scenes, right? Like, are we more excited about what we're doing or what God's doing in our world? When people come to us even about things of faith, are we more excited about telling them what we believe and what we've done or what God is doing right now? And that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus says, you see these signs of power, but I'm more interested in telling you in what God is doing. And then he says this phrase, right? If you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. And this is a fascinating chapter. Because I don't know if it's just Jesus messing with Nicodemus. I don't know if it's John just playing with the Greek because it's fun, right? Like, it's just like he woke up, like, we're going to make this, right? But there's so much going on in that phrase. Because the actual Greek phrase can mean, yes, you must be born again. It could also mean you must be born from above. And I think Jesus and John are actually using both of them because we're going to be talking about not just dark and light, but heaven and earth, right? And so, so Jesus starts off by Nicodemus and says, like, you must be born again. And Nicodemus does something that everyone else would say is like, well, I mean, Jesus, um, I'm a little bit older. Um, I think, Andrew, do you have the picture? Is it not loading? Perfect, perfect. I want you guys to contemplate on that as I talk, you know? Uh, this is actually a, a picture by Henry Osawa Turner, who is probably one of the most preeminent, um, I think, painters, that, artists in general that America's ever produced. Um, this picture, I think, is from 1899, spent six months in, in um, uh, Jerusalem and wanted to paint uh, a depiction. His father was a, a, a leader in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and his faith was actually, his most successful paintings was trying to exercise his faith. But I want you to kind of have this in mindset as we're having this conversation. Because as Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, you see that he's understood to be an older person, right? So Nicodemus isn't asking a wild question. At least he's just saying that, like, um, I'm Jesus, I'm, 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 I'm fairly certain. <laughs> like, I know you did this whole, like, you know, virgin birth stuff. But, like, me, like, how do I actually get born again? Like, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? Like, like what happens? Like, how is this possible? Now, if you do a little bit more digging, you'll see that there's some things that Nicodemus ignores. Number one, the Jews back then believed that if you weren't born ethnically a Jew and you were a Gentile, right, and you chose to follow God of Israel, guess what they would call you? Born again. Nicodemus knows this, right? There's no way he's on the Jewish ruling council, the Jewish Supreme Court uh, of theology and practice, the back to the Torah movement. There's no way he knows all of this without knowing this language. And it's a reminder to us that we can be right in front of our eyes, right? I love my wife sent me to find stuff because I never find it. And then it's right, where, right in front of where she said it, right? And this is what's happening. He's so stuck on, wait, what do you mean born again? Like, huh? In his own theology, in his own framework, if anyone from the outside came in, they called that person born again. Jesus isn't making up stuff here, right? This is language that's already there. Furthermore, they were in the Roman Empire. When, when, when those Roman leaders, patrofamilias, the, the heads of the family, the, 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 the men basically, right? When they adopted someone into the family, right? When they adopted you as a daughter, as a son, and you came into the family, there was this understanding that not only you're a member of the family, but you're leaving all the old for the new. You're a new person. 
So all of this is built in, but yet he's stuck on, like, I just don't know how physically this can happen. But Jesus is more patient than I am, right? Hopefully more patient than most of us, right? So Jesus tries another way. So he says, okay, let's try this. You must be born of water and spirit. And the twofold baptism Jesus is talking about is, again, coming from their context and culture. Because, again, in ancient Israel at this point, if you were a convert to Judaism, guess what they did? They baptized you by water. Again, Jesus isn't inventing anything new, right? And I think that's what I even love about the BIC. We're mostly not inventing anything new. We're just like, ooh, that's a new way to look at it. We like that. Jesus is saying, listen, when new people come in, you baptize them with water. But here's the difference. Now that I've come in, we'll baptize them with the Spirit. Because we're interested in a new creation, a new person, a new being. And even this wasn't new. If you go back to Ezekiel, God promises that when you come back to him, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, right? Like God promises this new spirit. And so Nicodemus is like, I don't know what we're talking about. And again, you can see it's in his culture, it's in his language. He knew this, he just wasn't seeing the light yet. So Jesus comes back and says, you know what? You all must be born again. It's not about the acts, the power, the clearing out of the temple, the water to wine. It's what have you done? Have you made this decision to follow me? Because what Jesus is interested in here is not just saving Israel. It's not just saving the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, and the high council. Jesus is interested in saving the world. And to save the world, he has to build a new family. And to build a new family that is going to adopt the converts from the outside, you have to be baptized by water and the Spirit. And so Nicodemus is trying to find his way. But the water was your entrance into the family, and the Spirit was your entrance into new life. And that's what Jesus is pushing. But Nicodemus stays confused, and Jesus says, okay, you're a teacher. How do you not get this? And shout out to the teachers. I'm sure you've had this feeling before. But Jesus says, you're a teacher. How can you not get this? And then he simplifies this. He says, listen, we all only speak what we know, right? We all only testify what we see. And I think Nicodemus is like, yeah, no, well, that makes sense. You know, like, you see what you know, you teach what you know. I got that part. He says, but you do not accept our testimony. I speak earthly and you don't believe it. But I am the one who's come down from heaven. And there's a beautiful thing Jesus does in this conversation. And that's connect heaven and earth, physical and spiritual. That's connect Nicodemus who's in the dark to Jesus who's in the light. And how he does this is by positing and positioning himself as the ladder between it all. And if you get that part of the conversation, you'll get what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, I know it doesn't make sense fully, but trust me. I know you don't got it all together, but trust me. I am going to bridge this gap. I am going to be the ladder because I'm the only one who's come down from heaven. I'm the only one who knows God. I'm the only one who is God. I have come so that all should be saved. And he quotes what, to me as a kid, was just like, well, that's a really cool verse. The son of man must be lifted up, right? Now he goes back to Moses and the people in the desert. He goes back to a time when they were complaining, God, you brought us out of Egypt just for us to die, right? 
And, and I said God is patient. This isn't one of the most patient stories. Maybe it's in a bridge version. But all we get is that the people complain and then snakes show up and start biting them. Right? Like, it's just, I'm sure maybe there's a longer story. You know, maybe it was like a whole week they were complaining. But all we read in, like, Exodus 21, I think it is, is like, they complain and the, 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 the snakes started coming. And then Moses takes a, a pole and, and puts a snake on a pole and, and he holds it up. And when they look up at the snake, right, they're healed. And that's what Jesus is quoting. What's fascinating is even to this day in 2023, a lot of medical uh, uh, logos, you'll see the, 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 the pole and the snake. And I'm just like, I get it. They were healed, but I would have some PTSD if that's me. You know, it's just like, I just, you know, I get it, but I would be a little bit, right? But I think what's even more fascinating is the language that Jesus uses here is that not only have I come so that all can be saved, but the, the, the Greek says that the, the pole or the sign, the, the, the pole that Jesus quotes to be lifted up is a sign of God's healing. And so what Jesus is saying here is like, not only will I be lifted up to die, but I will be exalted. And I will be exalted so that you will be healed. And then he has maybe the most famous verse in all of scripture, right? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. I think the Greek is probably better translated as this is how God loved the world. And I like that translation better. Maybe it's because it's newer to me, right? But when I think for God so loved the world, I like, well, he loves everybody, right? But what Jesus is saying is that if you want action, if you want proof, I am the action. I am the proof. God so loved, or God has already loved, that he sent me to you. Mary McLeod Bethune, who is um, an African-American scholar, educator, talks about John 3.16. And she has this quote I wanted to share this morning um, because she talks about how as a kid, I think she was like 15th of 17 kids, you know? Um, I think when kids hit like three, four, five, six, you're trying to find yourself. When you get to 17, it's just, I don't know, God finds you, you know? But she was a young kid. She went to school. And she remembers her teacher had a, a, a box of books in the beginning. And, and one day she opened up a Bible and read John 3.16. And this is what she said. She said, the scales fell from my eyes and the light came flooding in. My sense of inferiority, my fear of handicaps all dropped away. Whosoever it said, no Jew, nor Gentile, no Catholic, nor Protestant, no black or white, just whoever. It meant that I, a humble black girl, had just as much a chance as anybody in the sight and love of God. These words stored up a battery of faith and confidence and determination in my heart, which has not failed me to this day. There's a reason why John 3.16 is the most important verse in the Bible. There's a reason why for 2,000 years it's the most known verse in the Bible. Because in that verse we say, this is how God has loved us. Doesn't matter if you're black or white, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you've never heard of Jesus. Whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him. That's the message that John is trying to communicate to Nicodemus or to communicate to us through Nicodemus' story. But I think we ought to also remember that is God so loved the world. That while we each have to make that decision and we each have to pledge obedience, Jesus didn't just come for you. He loves you. He really loves you. But it's not only about you. God has sent Jesus to save souls, yes, but also to save all of creation. 
God has saves us, but it's not just for us, right? It's to invite us into the story. So as I thought about, you know, piety, obedience, devotion, and I was like, how do we wrap this all up? Well, the simple thing is that Jesus came so you can be born again. And I think that born again language, if it's born from above, if it's born from heaven, if it's born through Jesus, I think born again shouldn't just be this one-time decision I made. I think it's possible that every single day God can be remaking you into the image of the Son. I think being born again, what Jesus is calling here is, have you truly experienced God's love? Have you not only made that decision, but how has that impacted your life? How is your devotion to God impacting the world around you? Because yes, believe and live, but how are you obeying God? Because that's the hard part. We can have an altar call. You can come up and say, yes, I believe, but have you become a disciple? Is your life characterized by discipleship? For those of us who made that decision years ago, decades ago, years, even before I was born, is your life characterized by actually being a disciple? Because Jesus came so that we all could have eternal life. And what's fascinating is I grew up in the church. And whenever we talked about eternal life, we talked about heaven. What's interesting is when Jesus prays for us, and he talks about eternal life. In John 17, this is what Jesus says. For you granted Jesus, he's, speaking, he's praying to God, but he's talking about himself, right? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have give, you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The eternal life that Jesus wants for you isn't just heaven to come. The eternal life that Jesus wants isn't just, hey, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to break free in emergency. Use the glass. I don't know. I'm fire extinguisher. It, just, it worked in my head. We're just going to say break free in emergency. We're just going to stay there, right? It's not just insurance, right? And it's not just insurance that like, hey, when I, go to, when I die, I'm going to heaven. And it's not just insurance that things are really bad, right? Eternal life according to Jesus is what? That you may know the true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And sisters and brothers, there's no better way to know God than to obey God. There's no better way to know God than to actually listen to God. There's no better way to eternal life but to stop dreaming of a better world to come and start living for God today. Because when God saves you and invites you into the story, he calls you to stop dreaming of the better world to come and start working for it. And that's piety and obedience. God doesn't just want your faith and your devotion. God wants your life and your obedience to him. That's what he's calling us to do. And so the next time you read this Nicodemus story, remember that Jesus isn't just saying, hey, be born again. But Jesus is saying, are you willing to give me your all? Are you willing to trust me and not your wealth your power? Are you willing to put your faith in me and not your understanding and not your like, like position in society? Are you willing to understand and, and be a part of my new family and not just have allegiance to your ethnic family? Are you willing to choose to follow me because I don't just want your verbal conversation, your verbal uh, confession, 
I want your life. I want your life. Like, that's what he's calling for. So when we think about being born again, let's stop dreaming of heaven. Not because it's not good, right? Dream of heaven all you want. But as you're living, work to make heaven on earth. Because what eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. Jesus came so that we all can have this eternal life. So my only questions today are, for those of you who haven't fully made that decision, right, do you know God? And this isn't just for someone who's like, hey, I'm not a Christian, right? I think this is actually for the Christians too. Do you know God? How are you growing in your knowledge of God? How are you obeying God? Do you even know what God is calling you to obey? And because God has invited us into his story and for our world, the question then becomes, for those of us who say, yes, I know God, the question for us then becomes, does your world know God through you? Because you are the ladder. If Jesus is the ladder between heaven and earth, between dark and light, between Nicodemus and following God, you now, my sisters and brothers, you're the ladder between your world and our Jesus. Does your world know God because of you? Does your world know God because of you? We're going to end our service um, singing our final song. I'd like to invite up the worship team. Um, as we sing, I'd like to also invite any of the pastors in the room. We'd love to pray for you. Um, pray for you regarding either something you want to respond to in the service or, you know, maybe something that's happening in your life. We'd love to pray for that as well. But as we sing this song, right, and we're going to talk about let us be known by our love. Jesus is known because of Jesus' love. Can we be the same? This eternal life that Jesus promises us is not just heaven to come. It's today. So do you know God, and are you making God known? Let's stand and sing together.
One of the great blessings of our Christian faith is that we read that you know there's only one mediator between God and mankind, between God and humans, between God and us. And as a kid, when I heard that voice uh, verse, I was excited, right? Because to me, it meant that when I messed up, it was okay, because God's on my side, right? But I thought about Jesus as our mediator this week. I realized it's not just when we mess up. Right? Jesus was the ladder between heaven and earth, between dark and light, between following God and, and following tradition for Nicodemus. But Jesus also desires to be the ladder for us. So I don't know where you are this morning on your faith journey. I don't know where you are in your knowledge with God, your trust with God, your belief in God. But all I do know is that Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the door. So I would like to invite you today to make a decision. Not just to say, God, I follow you verbally, but to make a decision to say, Jesus, you're the only way. You're the one I follow. You're the one I choose. Because wherever you are on the journey, you may feel alone, but I guarantee you, Jesus has met millions of people at that same spot of the journey. Whatever you're going through right now, God is with you. And I thank you. I thank God that the eternal life that's promised us can be experienced and felt and known today. Do you know God? And are you living to make him known? Do you know God? And are you living to make him known? Do you know God? And are you living to make him known? Our Father and God, we thank you so much that you have come from heaven to meet us on earth. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you that you, the Son of God, has chosen us. We thank you that you are the ladder, the bridge, the connection point between us and God, between heaven and earth, between dark and light. And God, we thank you that wherever we are in our journey, we may feel that no one understands, 
We may feel that no one gets it. We may feel that we don't get it. We don't understand. But God, we pray this morning that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can feel your presence. We can experience your love. We can know your truth. We can fully trust that you are real, that you are present, and that you will see us through. So God, this morning, we pray that we may be born again. We pray that we may be born from above. We pray that we may be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. For those of us who've never made that decision to fully give our lives to you and to become disciples and to to obey you, Lord, we pray that today is a step in that direction and that even if we're bold enough to listen to the Holy Spirit, that we can make that confession today. Lord, we pray for all of us to take a step back this week and to ask, where do we need to confess? Where do we need to make restitution? Where do we need to repent? Or even for some of us, where do we need to obey? God, help us to be a people who are devoted to you by lives of obedience for you. So Lord, as we leave, we pray now that the God of heaven and earth, that the God who left heaven for earth, the God who went to Calvary's tree, the God who died for you and me, the God who came to save the world, the God who will make all things right, is the God we know, the God we feel, the God we experience, the God we live for. Jesus our Christ, help us to know your Father, help us to know the Spirit, help us to know you. And now with our lives, Lord, We pledge them back to you. Help our world, our family, our friends to be, to know you through us. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.